0: Good morning. Um, we've been spending a lot of time uh, in Revelation of late, and we're going to spend some time this morning in Revelation again. So if you would turn, please, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Chapter 3. The book of Revelation, Chapter 3. I always <coughs> remember someone saying that the, the prophetic sayings and the prophetic writings of the Bible are not addressed to our curiosity, but to our will and to our conscience. And whenever we read passages um, like some of the passages that uh, that Phil was dealing with in Revelation, they're not addressed to our conscience. Uh, pardon me, to our curiosity about what the future will be like, but to our minds, to our conscience, that our lives would be governed by what we are reading. Uh, in any particular passage in Scripture, but particularly the prophetic, prophetic word, we're going to read uh, verses 14 to 22 in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, it's the last of a series of seven messages to the seven churches from the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, we'll just. I think we can understand that this particular passage, perhaps others of the, of the letters to the seven churches in four different ways and we'll deal with that after, after we read. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the, of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And I should perhaps just stop right there. What does that expression, the beginning of the creation of God? It does not mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is a created being. It believes that, it teaches us that creation begins with Him. Our Jehovah's Witness uh, neighbors would tell us that um, the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, less than God the Father, that He is uh, a created being. That is not the case. And the whole weight of Scripture testifies that. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God. He shares all the attributes, all the qualities of character, wisdom, power, and might of the Godhead. And So I think that needs to be made very clear. We're not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being created. Carrying on, verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we consider this your word, uh, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Like I say this is the last of a series of uh, messages to the seven churches. and each church has its own issues. Uh, for example, uh, in Revelation uh, chapter two, the first seven verses we have a letter to the Church of Ephesus, which is characterized as a loveless church. Then there's the um, letter or the message to the angel of the church of Smyrna and it is a persecuted church. Then there's the letter or the portion that is addressed to Pergamos and it is a church that has compromised. Uh, The church of Thyatira has become corrupt and so forth. And uh, first of all, Uh, each of these have a contemporary application. Um, The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. Uh, It's thought about AD 95 or 96, near the end of the first century, while he was exiled to Patmos uh, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And so First of all, these messages to the churches, including the one to Leodicea, uh, speaks to the state of that particular church at the end of the first century. Then secondly, the letters to the seven churches are understood by many scholars to apply to the state of the church as a whole as the future unfolds. Uh, The messages are not just to the contemporary church, but they describe the church as it will be as the church age unfolds. According, accordingly, the letter or the message to the Laodicean church speaks prophetically of the church as it is at the end of the age and what is needed to remedy its situation. And I should perhaps put in a, uh, a comment here that I, I do not think that St. James Gospel Chapel is a Laodicean church. Please don't, please don't infer that from what, I, what I'm saying. Um, and I think that these characteristics of the different churches not only describe the church, the visible church as it will be as the age rolls along, but it can apply to individual churches at any particular time in history. But I also think that these letters to the seven churches in a sense, can be extrapolated not to, uh, to apply not just to churches, to congregations, but to individual persons, to our particular state, regardless of the era in which we live. And so and it may apply perhaps to our own individual Christian lives at different times. There there may be times when we have compromised when we shouldn't have compromised. Uh, There may be times when we're persecuted for our faith. There may be times when our lives are characterized by lovelessness and so on. And so we can apply it to to ourselves as individuals. And it's in that sense that I'd like to look at what the message to the Laodicean church has to say to me as an individual living about 1900 years after the book was written. And the letter to the Laodicean church is a challenging message. It reproves them for living under an illusion about themselves. They thought they were doing well. Verse 17, because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And perhaps in a material sense, that was the case. Perhaps it was a very active church, yet somehow something was missing. Uh, The Lord says, do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and and poor and naked? They thought they were doing well, but they were not. In fact, as the Lord saw them, there were grave deficiencies in them. They had become complacent. They had become smug, uh, perhaps self-satisfied, but as the Lord points out, they were impoverished and wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They believed themselves to be effective, but they're described as tepid, neither cold nor hot. Uh, I happen to like, for example, soup, hot. Nothing worse than a bowl of lukewarm soup. How about cold oatmeal? How about warm Coca-Cola? You know, uh, that's sort of the picture. Christ would have them to be either hot or cold, but they're neither, and so it's, he spews them out of his mouth. He finds them unpalatable and he spits them out of his mouth. There's a t- in the Middle Ages, there was a, a, a prominent man in the, in the church of the time called Thomas Aquinas, and um, so the story goes. He was visiting the Pope in Rome, and the, the Pope was in the treasury, and they were busy counting out all the money. And so the Pope, thinking that uh, he's being clever, said to Aquinas, you know, uh, we can no longer say like Peter and John, silver and gold have I none. To which Aquinas responded, but neither can you say, take up your bed and walk. A wealthy institution but spiritually powerless, wealthy but powerless in any real sense. And I think it was David Thoreau who once wrote, there's no one so thoroughly deceived as one who is deceived about himself. And so we need to guard uh, about, you know, thinking of ourselves to be something when we're not. As the Laodicean church was at the end of the first century, so if we understand the, the scripture in a prophetic sense, so will be the church at the end of the age. I can take this message to the Laodiceans and apply it to myself as a believer. So so as I look at myself, do I see those qualities in myself that Christ found so offensive in the Laodicean church? Do I think of myself in terms that the facts of my life don't justify? Am I complacent and self-satisfied. And so throughout the scriptures, we'll find uh, passages which tell us to indulge in a bit of self-analysis, to take a look at ourselves. Uh, In Galatians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, the apostle Paul writes, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one examine his own work." In Romans 12:13, Paul also writes, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, of course, there's a, there's a danger in self-examination. You can do it to the point of, of, of obsession. But I think it behooves me I'll use myself as the example, to take an honest look at myself and to see where I am spiritually, what I'm doing. Uh, Is what I'm doing prompted by the flesh or is it by the leading of God? And so I was to have a realistic sense before God of who I am, what I am, and appreciate the fact that any real accomplishments I may have is due to God working through me, not something I'm doing under my own steam. Now I can say self-examination can be, can be sobering, it's something that should be done, but it can also develop into an obsession. And insofar as, you know, it, it is possible and it's, sometimes self-exam, uh, self-examination can morph into self-pity, you know. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he tells uh, what he wants his his readers to think about, uh, he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So... We're not to spend an undue amount of time in pointless self-examination because, like I say, it can become obsessive, but having said that, that there's something that needs to be done periodically. And as the Lord's, uh, pardon me, as the Apostle Paul is speaking of the Lord's Supper, he speaks to the Corinthian church of, of, of people coming to observe the Lord's Supper Um, in an unworthy state but he says first let a man examine himself and then eat. And so there's there's a necessary balance there. But we are to see ourselves to uh, see ourselves as we are not as we wish we were, not perhaps as other people think we are but as we are. It is possible for us to be so absorbed in ourselves and in our work, as we say for the Lord, that he's on the outside looking in, so to speak. I think of the story of when the Lord went to visit Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And uh, uh, Martha was preoccupied in getting the meal ready, uh, but uh, Mary sat at the feet of the Lord and learned of him. Uh, Martha became resentful and said, Lord, you know, why isn't my sister helping me? Tell her to help me. Uh, but the Lord rebuked uh, Martha and said, you know, uh, uh, Mary has chosen that needful thing, that good thing, that better part. And uh, so sometimes it's necessary just to sort of step away from what we're doing and to sit at Christ's feet and then learn of Him. And then perhaps the work I'm which so, so busy will take care of itself. So in this passage in, in Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, uh, the, Apostle, uh, the, the Apostle John, as, as he passes on the message to the Laodicean church, passes on a message that they are delusional. They think they're one thing, they're actually another. And he counsels them to buy from him gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He calls them blind earlier on. He urges them to put this eye salve on, figure of speech I I would suppose, uh, and to see themselves as they really are, and then he says an interesting thing in verse 19: "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent." We sometimes think of love, or the pardon me, we also we sometimes think of the opposite of love as being hate. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, I think sometimes the opposite of love can be indifference. Sometimes we think the opposite of love is anger. But isn't it true, especially for those of you who are parents, that those, when you think of your children, those who you love the most are the ones that make you the most angry <laughs> when they start doing things they shouldn't be doing. And so the Lord is not indifferent to them to the Laodicean church. He's not, he's not indifferent to struggling Christians. Uh, he says, "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. therefore be zealous and repent." And it's interesting in verse. 20, as he talks to this this church and by extension to individuals that are not what they should be, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. That would suggest to me that in the Laodicean church and those of us who perhaps go through Laodicean periods in our lives. We have somehow shut the Lord out and it's his desire that to come in and have fellowship like Mary sitting at his feet when he was visiting uh, uh, Lazarus and Mary that's what he wants he wants people to have fellowship with himself I think that's the point of I will come into him and dine with him. Where often do we have fellowship but over a meal? I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And so we have the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ standing and knocking at the door of a deluded church that was in trouble and I think all of us have probably seen at one time or other Holman Hunt's famous picture based on this passage of the Lord Jesus Christ standing outside. He's holding a lantern, he's wearing a crown of thorns, and he's knocking on a door, but the door has no handle on the outside. It's up to the people inside, the person inside, to get up and open the door. And so this can apply to the individual believer as well. If we have lapsed into, if I have lapsed, into some of these things that characterize the Laodicean church, the Lord's knocking at the door, but it's up to us to get out of the couch, turn off the TV, maybe switch off the computer and open the door. It can also be a picture, I believe, of those who have never accepted the salvation and the Lordship of Christ. Now I know this is addressed to a church. It is addressed to a a group of believers that are not what they ought to be. But I also believe that it can be addressed to those who have never accepted the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that picture of Christ standing at the door with no handle on the outside, can be applied there as well. It could be that the man or the woman on the other side of the door is completely oblivious to their need. They're unaware of their need for forgiveness. They're unaware of their need for reconciliation with God. They're unaware of their need for God's presence in their lives. And so... Christ says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. In either situation, the Lord Jesus doesn't behave like a stormtrooper and kick the door down. It's up to us. It's up to us, as it were, to open the door and admit him, admit him into our lives, to admit Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I am estranged from God. Yes, I need forgiveness. Yes, I cannot uh, atone for my own sins. I need a Savior. I need the Savior. I need to let the Lord Jesus Christ into my life. And that can apply for elapsed Christian. That can apply to a cold christian that can apply to a christian who thinks they're doing well but in fact aren't it also applies i believe to those who have not yet accepted Christ Jesus into their lives into their lives uh, as savior and as lord yes i believe the lord jesus christ died for my sins Yes, I believe that I have forgiveness of sins, and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm no longer an orphan, but a child of the living God. The Lord Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And unfortunately, in this world in which we live, which is so noisy and so intrusive, we may miss that knock on the door, that voice. Uh, I sometimes I, I go to the Y and, and and work out, and it's interesting. You see these folks of all ages working out on the different machines, treadmills, and whatever. And they almost all of them have their earbuds in and they're listening to something. And it seems that a lot of people today are uncomfortable uh, with silence. There has to be something occupying their mind, their attention every minute, uh, every hour of the waking day and I sometimes wonder if, if it's people are uncomfortable with silence because just maybe in that silence God will speak to them. It's interesting, um, the prophet Elijah after he had that contest with the uh, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel he, uh, the Lord gave him a wonderful victory there uh, but afterwards uh, Queen Jezebel uh, sent him a letter saying uh, "You know, may I do to you what you have done to the prophets of Baal and Morsel and of course Elijah ran for, uh, yeah, Elijah ran for his life and he went to the mountain, stood in a cave uh, where he had an encounter with God. There was a wind, there was an earthquake, but God was neither in the wind nor the earthquake, but then there was that still, small voice. And I think all, all too often, the noise of the world drowns out, that still, small voice, knock, that knock on the door. That voice that says, you know, open the door. Let's have fellowship together. Uh, may I enter in that you may enter into peace. So, just some thoughts on the letter to the Laodicean church. I think, I think probably all of us at some time or other have our Laodicean <coughs> moments. Uh, but may, the, may we be attentive to the voice of the Lord. Uh, Asking that we direct our attention to him. Not to what we're doing. Not to what the world says. But to him. And to learn of him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for its comfort. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you for its words of assurance but we also our God thank you for its warnings. Our God sometimes if we're honest with ourselves the Word of God speaks to us where we are and we don't feel very comfortable hearing it. Help us then our Father to, to understand that the Scripture speaks to us, that the Holy Spirit speaks to us using it uh, and that your Your object, our God, is because you love us, is that we pay attention to what you are saying, that we turn our hearts to you. We pray for those of us here today, our God, who perhaps are having Laodicean moments, moments of spiritual dryness, moments when things just don't seem to be quite right. And we just pray, our God, that we would turn to you, turn to the Lord Jesus. We pray for those who are here who have never, ever, at any time opened the door to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might know their need, need of forgiveness, their need of healing, and open the door of their lives and let the Lord Jesus Christ come in. And uh, we remember his promise. He said, the peace I give, not as the world do I give, but my peace I give you. And we just pray, our God, that in all of our hearts and minds, we would have all peace and joy in believing. Bless our, uh, bless our time. Uh, or we pray for your blessing, our God, uh, on this time together. We pray, our God, that we would be blessed as we leave, not that we might keep hoard your blessings, as it were, but rather be a blessing to others. Help us, our God, to speak to others about the peace that is found in your Son. So we give thanks again for this time together in your word, in Christ's name, amen.